Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work-from-home period with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're trying to do during these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conference series, the SALT Conference. And at our conferences and on these SALT Talks, we're trying to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome Strauss Zelnick to SALT Talks. Strauss founded ZMC in 2001. He has a long history of leading media and communications enterprises and is deeply involved in originating investments, advising executives, and guiding strategic and operational initiatives across all portfolio company investments. Strauss serves as the chief executive officer and chairman of the board of the directors uh, for Take-Two Interactive Software Incorporated. In addition, he recently served as interim chairman of the CBS Corp board of directors. Prior to forming ZMC, Strauss was president and CEO of BMG Entertainment. And before joining BMG, Strauss was the president and CEO of Crystal Dynamics, a producer and distributor of interactive entertainment software. He spent four years as president and COO of 20th Century Fox, where he managed all aspects of Fox worldwide motion picture productions and distribution business. Uh, Strauss holds a BA from Wesleyan University, as well as an MBA from Harvard Business School and a JD from Harvard Law School, which he shares uh, with our moderator today. He's the author of Success, A Concise Guide to Having a Life You Want and Becoming Ageless, two great books. And Strauss is also a, a workout fanatic and uh, he has a few years on me, but he's in much better shape than me, that is for sure. Reminder, if you have any questions for Strauss during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Just point, pointing out, John, that like it's like calling your aunt a woman that Strauss Zelnick is in better shape than you. I just... But I would just mention that before we get the... I left you out of it, Anthony, but... You didn't have to overstate the obvious, okay? So, Strauss, welcome to Salt Talks. Great to have you on. Uh, you got such a storied background, but I, I, I always ask this question. Tell us something about you that we couldn't learn from Wikipedia or from doing a Google search. Uh... Thank you for asking. Anthony, it's great to be here. It's great to see you, um, although first seeing you in person. And uh, Anthony, um, among his many attributes, is also also shares something um, that, I, that I pride myself on, which is if you text Anthony, you get an answer in about 30 seconds. I try to do the same. And I will say that um, during this political period leading up to the election, that was a, a, a great source of information and at times comfort. So, um, it's or misinformation, been, uh, Strauss. Don't give him too much credit. I basically, I was basically lying to you with overconfidence, Strauss. <laughs> you should have heard him on election night. He was yelling at me. He said, "You are too confident. You made me confident. What were you doing?" 
All right, well, at nine o'clock, it was a little dicey, okay? But that was the whole Trump design. He was, he was trying to get all those votes get counted after the fact. Okay, fine. Anyway, so uh, Let's it's move great on. to be We're here. We're talking about you being a fatso, Darcy. Let's <laughs> move on, okay? We got we got other more important things to talk about. But go ahead. So John. let's see. What probably the thing that you, would... you grew up You grew up in Mass, right? You're from I, I go, The thing that you wouldn't be able to tell from Wikipedia is that um, I, I started off wanting to be, um, you know, performer. So even though I spent my whole life in media and entertainment, specifically uh, in the movie business, television business, the music business, the video game business, uh, the broadcast television business, but like many people who find themselves in an executive position in entertainment, I started off wanting to entertain. The only problem was I had a small problem, which was an utter and complete lack of talent. Uh, so <laughs> that's where I started off. So I, I was. Did, uh, did you go on an audition? Were you? Oh yeah. I was, so actually, I, I was a singer-songwriter. I wrote lots of songs and. Um, that was that was sort of my area of great interest. I was a novelist, and in fact, I my um, my thesis at Wesleyan was creative writing. Um, when I was in high school, I made money by uh, being a magician at kids' birthday parties, um, and I also did some acting. And in fact, I I just nearly missed um, getting cast in a major motion picture when I was seventeen years old. So I went through a sort of one of those group auditions, and I was. Um, I was second to last and ultimately didn't get it. And they ultimately didn't make that picture. They made it many years later, but not that particular one. So, so I had a number of sort of uh, near success experiences, but I just didn't have the talent for it. And I had the presence of mind to understand that before it was too late and turn my attention to the business side of the equation. But you stayed in media. You like, you like media entertainment. You like that whole uh, sector of the U.S. economy. Why? Why do you like it so much? Well, first of all, again, having having fallen in love with all forms of entertainment from from the point of view of a potential creator or performer, uh, the closest I could get was to being in the business side because I seemed to have some facility for business, uh, and that and this is true of many people who who work in the entertainment industry. Uh, I have an enormous respect for creative talent, uh, for, for for performers and for creators, and to be able to help them bring their amazing creativity and talent to audiences all over the world gives me enormous satisfaction. Uh, it's also not lost to me that there are some great business opportunities. And, and the one that's been biggest in my career has been interactive entertainment because of, for, you know, for, for some reason I was able to identify that as an opportunity when I was still in the movie business many years ago. And I took an enormous risk and did something no one ever does, which is I voluntarily left the position of president of a major film studio took a 95% pay cut, moved to Silicon Valley and started a video game business uh, well before, well before it was sexy to do so. And what did you see? So well, the vision was people would spend more time at a video game than they would actually even at a uh, motion picture. Or what did you see? What was the insight? No, I think this is now so long ago. What I, what I saw was this is a, this is the beginning of a burgeoning entertainment business. And this has all the earmarks of the motion picture business in the 1920s, uh, you know, before before there were sound movies and before there were color movies, but you could see that this was going to be a huge business, and there were a bunch of entrepreneurs who saw that and built what became today's major studios. And I thought the same opportunity existed uh, about 25 years ago, and 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 uh, I was part of that with uh, Crystal Dynamics. Um, that was my first video game business. The second one was at BMG Interactive. And the third was, of course, take two. 
But things have uh, changed for the entire entertainment landscape as a result of COVID-19. However, in the interactive space, one could argue that it's actually gotten better in some ways. It's more, perhaps more robust. What are the changes that take to his experience? Where do you think things are going? Am I correct in that observation? That's not me doing anything scientific. It's just me observing my, uh, my children and what they're doing in this period of time. Well, you know, of course, this this pandemic has brought terrible tra tragedy and privation to so many, and we, you know, we need to be mindful of that and respectful of that. And it's hard to want to take a victory lap in that context. That said, there's no doubt that sheltering at home caused people to consume more entertainment of all forms that they could consume at home. So it took an enormous toll on live entertainment and sports and benefited uh, linear entertainment, motion pictures that you can watch at home, television, distribution, music. And of course, benefited interactive entertainment as well, but it disproportionately benefited interactive entertainment. And I think the question you're posing is why? Why would we get a disproportionate benefit? And I think the answer is that people realize that with interactive entertainment, you not only have you know, great graphics, great stories, great characters, great gameplay, but you can consume the experience with your friends and with communities, both existing and new, all around the world in real time as you're consuming you know, the, the game. And um, we like to consume entertainment with other people. We like to participate with other people. We like to watch with other people. What a great thing to be able to play a multiplayer game as a character and to compete with or cooperate with Anthony, even though Anthony's 100 miles away or 1,000 miles away or 3,000 miles away. And uh, you can do that with interactive entertainment. You can't do it with anything else. People, people love watching movies with other people, but I, I don't think during the pandemic, you know, Anthony, you're sitting at home watching a movie and you're, you know, in a group chat with friends in France or watching the same movie. But you specifically are doing that when you're playing Grand Theft Auto online. That's exactly what you're doing. Yeah, no, I, I think I think it's fat, fascinating. Amazon's obviously trying to do that now with Amazon Prime. They're trying to link you uh, to other people while you're watching the movie, but you're not interacting. You're not competing. There isn't a story arc like there is in Grand Theft Auto that you can actually participate in, uh, which makes it very sexy, particularly to uh, younger people. Um, but I want to I want to ask you this question because this uh, there's constant product innovation. You have PlayStation Five coming out, Xbox Series X. Both of them are out effectively. Uh, shortage on both of them. How do how do you guys adapt your business model to the hardware? component to this stuff? Do you make the stuff sexier? Has it been more appealing? The graphics? Uh, where are you from a vision perspective? Well, what's great about these new platforms is they give our creative folks the technical ability to build better experiences, whether they're, they load faster or the graphics are better, or the interactions are more realistic um, because memory is better. Um, and, you know, the date, the rate of data transmission is faster or what you can do graphically is, is deeper uh, or all of the above. Business model doesn't really change, uh, although certainly a new technology has enabled new business models, most specifically the ability to keep consumers engaged in between big releases and then to monetize that engagement. But this new um, you know, array of platforms, including upgraded PC platforms, really doesn't have much of an influence, if any, on the business model. It does, however, potentially increase the size of the market when people say, wow, that NBA 2K21, 
that looks like real basketball. You know, step back from the screen just a little bit, squint a little bit. I can't tell the difference between NBA 2K21 and, and a basketball game. This is amazing. And you're going to see even more of that in the next five or 10 years. And I don't think it'll take 10 years. We will be able to create video games, you know, with computers that look exactly like live action. Um, I'm not saying we will, but by the way, people may still, I, our creative folks won't necessarily choose to do that. We'll still have titles of like Borderlands looks like a graphic novel. Um, but you'll be able to do that if you want to do that. And that's going to be very intriguing. You're bringing up NBA 2K, uh, which my kids wanted me to ask you this question. I'm dying to ask you this question. It's about esports, and so you have this contract with the NBA. You have NBA 2K, and then you have the introduction of this new sports franchising, even uh, where players are playing uh, in arenas. Players are playing in Las Vegas. Is this a fad? in your opinion, Strauss, or is this the next frontier in sports and entertainment? Well, for sure, it's not a fad. <clears throat> and it's for sure, it's a frontier. The question, of course, is always, you know, how high is up? And that I can't speak to. I know the 250 million people love watching esports. 125 million people say that it's a primary entertainment activity for them. But this is still not a heavily monetized market. You know, the entire esports business is about a billion dollars. And most of that goes to one title, incidentally, not our title. I don't think esports will be, you know, uh, found in, you know, 50 different leagues doing 50 different things any more than professional sports are. I think you'll have five titles in the same way we have five big, massive worldwide sports that matter or so. And I'm hopeful that the NBA 2K League will be one of them because it's based on something that we know people love to participate in and watch, which is the NBA. Um, so unlike some of our competitors, we don't believe that we can put out an array of titles and at any given time we can take a new intellectual property and turn that into an eSport. I think that's going to be very difficult to do. But I remain immensely hopeful that the NBA 2K League will become a very big business over time. It's going to take a while. It's still a very, very small part of our business, not a material part of our business yet. So I want you to put your traditional entertainment hat on and your interactive hat on at the same time. And I want you to think about where we are in terms of COVID-19. And so my friends in the media business or traditional media business are slowed down. There are delays in production. They can't release movies because many movie theaters are closed or there's only 25% occupancy in the movie theaters. Um, and so the first part of this question is, what do you think happens to that side of the entertainment industry? How quickly can it recover or is it permanently changed? And then the secondary element of the question is, and so how has that overflowed and impacted you at Take Two and what I would call the interactive media side of the business? Look, I think with Warner Media's announcement that they're going to go day and date uh, to their digital platform along with a theatrical release, you know, that puts a fine point on the possibility that post-pandemic theatrical distribution, you know, is going to be challenged on an ongoing basis. But that really wouldn't be a big change. That would just be an acceleration of a prior trend. And I think one of the things that many people have said is that the pandemic has accelerated prior trends. It's been great for ZMC because we, we try to bet on trends that we expect to come to fruition in 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. Well, you know, acceleration is fantastic for the companies that we already own and interesting for the companies that we'd like to own. Um, 
So, I, you know, I, I think theatrical distribution is challenged. Uh, motion picture business has been a challenge business for a very long time, much longer than most people acknowledge. And I think that will continue to be the case. But of course, the television business has been, if anything, benefited by sheltering at home. People are consuming more television along with more interactive entertainment. So I don't believe that we're seeing any kind of you know, tragic consequence for legacy, traditional, linear entertainment. I think we're just going to see you know, more happening that was already happening. Uh, and I think there'll be great opportunity for great creators largely in the television space. I think, you know, if we, you want to dig in to what will happen to all the various subscription platforms in television, I think, you know, there's not going to be a winner takes all and there's going to be a whole bunch of losers. That's a separate conversation. Now, juxtapose that against our business. Look, we're booming. The average age of our consumer is 37 or 38. People consume for the rest of their lives the entertainment they fell in love with at the age of 17. You know that. You know that the music you like most, no matter what you say, is the music you loved when you were 17. The, the, you know, the entertainment you loved at 17, that's always been your love. That will stay your love. So when you turn 39, you don't stop playing video games, but new people are coming into the market. That cohort's going to grow for the next 20 or 25 years, just naturally. Does that mean that we do well? Not necessarily. We have to execute every day. We have to make hits. But it certainly is nicer to have meaningful tailwinds than headwinds. And the interactive entertainment space has loads of tailwinds, again, accelerated, you know, for the by the pandemic, undoubtedly. See, see, Dorsey, that what Strauss is saying, that means that in sync is going to be in your life. For the rest of your life, I just thought I would. That <laughs> I out. hope so. Insync yeah. was one of my acts. Yeah, so. I remember. That's Insync. why I'm bringing Fantastic. it up. Yeah. Well, you know, Darcy, you, when you're 95 years old, you'll be listening to Insync. Imagine that. So, so Strauss, uh, before he can, I inter- still listen. I still listen to James Taylor. So, you know, yeah, I'm well, sure it's true. Listen, uh, Kiss now, North, North Carolina guy. Who's Love it. Before, before he, before he gets to me, I'm going to interrupt and keep moving. I want to ask you about QB. If I'm even pronouncing it right, Quibi. Quibi. Um, you know, fa- you know, I thought it was a fascinating idea. Uh, some of the smartest people I know were involved in it. Uh, and so, and it failed and, you know, it was a billion and a half dollar loss and it failed pretty quickly. And so my question to you is did it fail because of the idea that it failed because of COVID-19? Is it an idea ahead of its time or is it the DeLorean where it was just never going to catch fire? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, the first thing is it's so tempting to be critical of, of someone else's failures and, you know, to claim, you know, here I am, I'm so smart and I knew it all along. You know, innovation is really hard. And, you know, I have enormous respect for, for what Jeffrey tried to do, what Meg tried to do. And, uh, you know, they, they, in, in record time, they were able to aggregate extraordinary talent. And, and they took a chance. And for an array of reasons, you know, it didn't work out. Um, and and it, again, it's tempting to be critical of those, those reasons. I think ultimately launching any kind of consumer proposition in a big way is really hard. And I do think launching something that didn't exist before into the pandemic is very different than what we faced. We already had a business. We had a very successful business. We already had numerous successful titles, NBA, Borderlands, Grand Theft Auto, Red Dead Redemption, um, the list goes on. And so we had an ongoing business generating 
consumer engagement. We could build that business. And of course, we were benefited by sheltering in place. But I can't say to you that had we tried to launch our business from scratch with loads of investment mid-March, that it would have gone well. It seems to me it would have been very, very difficult. So I admire what they tried to do greatly. Um, It's terribly unfortunate um, that it didn't work out. And I I think it may be that they were ahead of their time. Uh, That remains to be seen. Now, look, our approach to innovation tends to be smaller scale. Uh, I'm very conservative. I hate losing money. So we tend not to make big, splashy moves. We tend to make smaller, incremental moves. And um, the good news is that making smaller, incremental moves means that you're unlikely to have significant losses. And I'm very grateful for the fact that in my career, I haven't had any at all. Um, I've always created a return for shareholders. I've never failed to repay debt. Um, But equally, you know, you may lose the opportunity to have that extraordinary, massive, groundbreaking win. And, um, you know, to each person, to each entrepreneur, their own style and approach. You know, I've pursued the style and approach that works for me, but boy, you know, took a long time to create the success that we've had with Take Two and the success that we've had with ZMC. You know, as I like to say, the only overnight successes are other people's successes, certainly not mine. Um, and, uh, And on to the next. But is short form entertainment, you know, one of the paths to the future of entertainment? Unquestionably. Um, will it be realized in a way that's, uh, you know, additive to what already exists on Snapchat, TikTok, YouTube, and other platforms? Unquestionably. We have not seen the full expression of short-form entertainment, not even close. So, you know, it may turn out that, that what was tried at Quibi will really inform what's tried in the future. Well, I mean, just to give you a sense of how little I know, I didn't get the opportunity to invest in Quibi, but I would have invested in it. I thought that that was a brilliant idea. And I have an enormous amount of respect for Meg Whitman. I think she was a, a classmate of yours, right? Or was she at Harvard Business School with you? Or, I don't, not with me. Um, we're, but but um, I think she did go to Harvard Business School. Jeffrey and I obviously, you know, uh, worked together in the motion picture business, not at the same company, but we were on the board of the MPA together. And, yeah. And I've always obviously, obviously I, admired I, what he's been able to achieve. It's just one of these things. When I was back in, in college, uh, my, one of my cousins worked for AT&T and it was 1981 or 82. And he was explaining to me that we were going to be able to play Atari Pong over the phone lines. And he was explaining to me how it was going to work. And, and then AT&T disbanded it. And I, and I remember him saying, well, they disbanded it because it was too costly. They couldn't figure out a way to make it work the way we're making it work today in terms of the innovation. So I do think it's a, uh, something just slightly ahead of its time. You mentioned ZM. By the way, I worked at AT&T. My first desk job was a summer internship at AT&T. Out in New Jersey, probably, right? Or where it was, Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Yeah. Best corporate cafeteria ever. I think that was in 1979 or 1980. Yeah, so, so you, you know, my, my cousin's name is Michael Saka. Not that you would have overlapped with him, but, but he worked there for many years. And, and he always said that the breakup of AT&T, uh, and this is something we've, we've had monopolists and anti-monopolists on uh, Saul talks to talk about these things because the breakup of AT&T actually unleashed a tremendous amount of technological growth. All those patents, as you know, Strauss from Bell Labs, uh, there were licenses that were able to be doled out. And sometimes what happens is monopoly power suppress technological innovation because they're making such great economic rent 
from their existing structure. You know, you don't go from copper wire to fiber optic if you don't need to, so to speak. But, but I want to I want to ask you about ZMC, which is a private equity firm that you are also the founder of. You mentioned it a few times, and you basically take a position. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, that you're looking for the future. The portfolio of companies there is what is the next trend? It's sort of a private equity firm that sees around corners, if you will. So what things should we be watching for in 2021 and beyond as you manage to grow that portfolio? You know, the theme that we're, we're theme driven. So, you know, we don't, we don't get books from bankers and say, well, that's interesting. And then send in a bid. We pursue 10 to 12 investment themes at a the time. Then we proactively try to find companies that are operating within that theme, you know, companies we believe have great futures ahead of them, and then, you know, try to invest in those companies or buy those companies. And that's what we've always done. And that's led us to, you know, stay away from themes that we thought would be challenged. And in the early part of the 2000s, you know, we didn't buy consumer magazines, we didn't buy newspapers, even though they were, believe it or not, sexy at that time, we didn't buy broadcast radio or broadcast television, even though that was very sexy at the time, of course, multiples have come way down, it's pretty hard to make a great return when you have, you know, multiple dilution. Um, we did, however, invest in online market research before that was a thing and television direct marketing um, before that was really a thing. Um, and we've, we've invested in businesses that enable the, the growth of mobile communications before that became obvious in two such businesses. Um, the, the theme that I'm most excited about is, is the explosion of data. Um, which I, you know, I, I would express, you know, this way, however much data you think consumer and enterprise will need in five years, you're wrong. It'll be more. There is an explosion of data in the consumption, storage, uh, and transmission of data. And so we're investing in businesses that enable the consumption, storage, and transmission of data. First and foremost, it's hard to do because, you know, you know, we're not buying stock in Facebook. I don't think our limiteds would think that that was a very good thing for us to do for them. They can do that without us if they wish. We're typically buying businesses that are enabling enterprises or software enterprises within that space. There are numerous other areas that we like, but that's the theme that I find most exciting. Um, or said another way, you know, Anthony, you know this to be true. There are a lot of people who say, you know, the most exciting parts of the Media business and the entertainment business are behind us. Those the the fifty years between you know nineteen thirty and nineteen eighty that was really exciting. Um, I think actually the next forty years will be the most exciting time for media and entertainment, and that'll live mostly be supercharged by technology. I also think there are people who say you know we have the internet, we have digital communications, we kind of know what that looks like now. It's all pretty mature, and and I think the answer is no. It's just the beginning. You know, I'm, I'm on an iPad today. It's a great device, but in 10 years, I'll be on something that's way better, way cooler, way lighter, way cheaper. Um, take a look at, you know, this device. This is it's a supercomputer in your hand, but in 10 years, it won't be this form factor. You know, it won't be this heavy. Um, it'll be much smarter, much better. It'll look and feel different. And that's just, you know, two examples that are close at hand. So... What we're trying to do at ZMC is think about what does the world look like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years and, you know, skate to where the puck is going, not where it is. So for somebody that doesn't understand the transition from, say, 4G to 5G, people think that that's incrementally 
20 to 25% more improvement, but it's way more massive than that. So how would you describe that to a lay person, the move from 4G to 5G? You know, the opportunity will simply be that, you, you know, you'll be able to do more with wireless connections than you can do now. So, you know, what can we do now with a wireless connection? Well, I don't know. Right now I'm in Westchester County, New York, and sometimes I have conference calls uh, when I'm driving from Westchester, you know, into Manhattan. And, you know, what are the odds that I can make a high quality conference call um, completely uninterrupted from Westchester to Manhattan? The odds are about zero. Well, 5G will make those odds much higher, just as, as an example, once you have full 5G coverage. Right. Um, or if I wanted to do right now, I'm on a Wi-Fi connection um, and I'm, I get pretty good connections, pretty fast and pretty crisp. Um, but if my Wi-Fi went down and I had to switch to my cellular connection, it wouldn't be as good. In fact, it's possible my video would be really choppy. Well, with 5G, it wouldn't be. So just think about it as more data, you know, quicker. Um, and, and all of the uses that you're currently, um, that you find are currently constrained by existing cell distribution are less likely to be constrained with 5G. It's as simple as that. It's otherwise not a game changer. But, you know, the biggest game changer is if you want to have super high quality wireless connections right now, you basically need fiber and then you need a great short connection, you know, wirelessly. 5G can offer you much higher quality for longer distances, but I don't actually think that's how it'll be used. I still believe that, you know, the bulk of the high quality transmission will be fiber for very long distances. It's not like it would make sense to do that wirelessly. You don't have to. So before I uh, turn it over to John Darcy and the ton of audience questions that are coming in, um, I've got a question about uh, one of your books, uh, being ageless, basically. You, 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 you wrote a terrific book. You gave a copy of it to my wife and I. The title of it is called Becoming Ageless. Uh, Bill, Bill Maher, the American comedian, Strauss, you know, he's a friend of mine. He's my nutritionist. And he basically told me uh, three words that I should abide by as my nutritionist. And I'll, I'll tell you what he said. Don't eat bread. That's, that's his whole nutritional mantra. Uh, but you, uh, uh, you wrote a great book. You're living that book. You look about 15 to 25 years younger than you actually are. So I won't give up your age. Um, but tell me something that we can share with our SALT delegates uh, that they should be doing uh, for their health and their well-being. Well, first of all, I'm not much shy about my age. I'm 63 um, and older than you, Anthony. <clears throat> and um, not wiser, just older. And in terms of, you know, what I recommend. Can you cut Strauss's video, Darcy? Darcy, you're <laughs> my friend now. Can you, can you cut his video, please? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the first is, what is it that you want? So, the, you know, if you're happy with your current lifestyle, then the answer is don't do anything differently. But if, if you want to live, you know, a, a, as healthy a life as you can, you can affect your health span. It's actually somewhat harder to affect your lifespan. Um, even if you do everything right, you may not really affect your lifespan, depending on your genetics or just serendipity. You know, terrible things can happen or good things can happen. But first and foremost, if you want to have a good health span um, and a good lifespan, there are a couple of things you don't do, like don't smoke. That, that is the factor most highly correlated with a short, bad life is smoking. So don't smoke. Second factor most highly correlated with a shorter, worse life is alcohol abuse. Um, believe it or not. So, you know, those two things, if you, if you, if you stop smoking, if you smoke, 
we can stop there. That's such a game changer. If you drink too much alcohol and you just drink less, that's a meaningful game changer. Now, beyond that, what steps can you take? You talked about diet. We all kind of know what we should and shouldn't eat. I don't agree that, you know, don't eat bread is the whole answer because if you're saying, good, I'll stop eating bread, but I'm going to have, you know, 14 Diet Cokes a day, that's not going to go so well for you. So we know what's bad for us. We know what's good for us. And, um, you know, whole foods, not staying away from processed foods, you know, not drinking soda, not drinking fruit juice, which is just sugar, um, and eating plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables, lean protein, uh, and limiting your processed carbs. That's probably a pretty good diet. The second piece of advice is go to the doctor and do what the doctor says. Whenever people say, oh, I never go to the doctor. I don't need to. It's totally fine. You know what? It's not totally fine. You're making a terrible decision because there are a few illnesses for both men and women that are easily detectable. And if you happen to have them, if they're detected early, easily curable. And if they're not detected early, they will kill you. For example, colon cancer. So if you don't go to the doctor and you don't have the appropriate test, you could get that and not know you have it and it'll kill you. Um, so go to the doctor, do what the doctor says. Another a characteristic associated with a long, healthy life is actually taking the medication that is prescribed to you. The third, third is move, some kind of exercise. I'm a fanatic. You don't need to be a fanatic, but you should try to move five days a week. If all you do is walk for half an hour a day, five days a week, um, that's great exercise. It's a great start. You want to do more than that, you can do more than that. And finally, have some kind of spiritual life, some kind of um, connection with other people, some kind of connection to the world outside of you. And whether that takes the form of you know, religious practice or meditation practice or yoga practice or, or perhaps taking you know, a walk quietly um, or reading or sitting quietly, but have some kind of spiritual life, uh, preferably that connects you to like-minded people. Uh, those things taken as a whole, I think, will lead you to a healthier, better, longer life. And when I say becoming ageless, by the way, you know, no, I don't think I look 20 or 25 years younger, although thank you, Anthony, but I feel like I'm 25 years old. I try to operate as though I'm 25 years old. Um, and, you know, I feel just great. And if, if I can continue to feel this way, it allows me to be my best self in every part of my life, you know, my relationships, my work, uh, my fitness, um, my leisure, um, and it allows me to, to hold up well under stress too. Um, so, you know, that, that's what I advocate. With the book. But, if, but for some people, honestly, they're just happy the way it is and God bless them. That's fine. I'm just letting you know the Botox stash that I have in my garage. None for you, Strauss. <laughs> but I'm going to turn, I'm going to turn it over to John Dorsey. And by the way, I really do want to recommend this book because it, it is a game changer, and I will attribute a lot of my exercise regimen to what I read in Becoming Ageless, just in terms of making it a priority, like you would a meal or savings or investing or spending time with family. You got to make yourself a priority during the day as it relates to exercise. So with that, let's turn it over to John Dorsey, who's got a ton of audience questions for you, Stress. Uh, the Botox Thanks, is a very, it's a very important part of Anthony's mental health routine. You know, he's very, <laughs> uh, he's very vain. And when he looks at the camera, it's, my, it's just like Darcy reads Playboy for the article Strauss. I use, I use <laughs> the Botox for my migraines. I just want to make, make sure everybody knows that. Okay. Go ahead, Darcy. Go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, we have a question about virtual reality and augmented reality. You talked about you're on an iPad, you have an iPhone, it's a supercomputer. 
But those, if you look 30 years into the future, you know, our grandkids or our kids might look at us and say, wow, you used to use an iPhone. That seems very, you know, archaic way to access the internet or game or to interact with people. What types of forms do you think gaming and entertainment might take over that type of time period? Let's say 20 to 30 years. Are we going to see you know, true augmented reality. We've seen some startups like Magic Leap that have gotten a lot of hype, but haven't really delivered, at least on a consumer level. We've seen some virtual reality like Oculus and others haven't quite delivered on their initial promise. But And then you have people like Elon Musk who think we're going to implant chips in our brain. We're going to basically live uh, experiences through our mind. What do you expect that form factor to look like? So it's really hard to predict 30 years in the future. I mean, I think the only thing that is predictable is it'll be very, very different than what we have today. Uh, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if we have certain um, devices implanted in ourselves. You know, virtual reality, what that conjures up today now is a vision and hearing occluding headset uh, where you embark in a world that is created for you and you move around that world. And, and no, I don't think that's the future of entertainment at all. First of all, it's solitary. Um, we don't like to consume entertainment in a solitary way. Second, it requires dedicated space. Third, it's really expensive. Fourth, it makes you not nauseated. And that's a real problem because nausea and entertainment, they don't really go together so well. So um, I, I don't really believe in, in the current expression of virtual reality as the future of entertainment. But I wouldn't rule out anything for 30 years from now. Augmented reality means you know adding characters to the setting that you're currently in. Um, Pokemon Go is a great example of that. It can be a lot of fun, uh, you know, properly executed. I, I think that could be a great opportunity, but I don't think it will redefine the business any more than 3D re redefined motion pictures, or even frankly, any more than color defined uh, redefined motion pictures. It was there. It was a tool. Great. It didn't, it didn't give a, any company a particular leg up. So, you know, at the end of the day, we like to tell stories and be told stories and linear entertainment will always do that and will always exist in one form or another. Um, and we like to compete and play games and interactive entertainment will exist for that purpose as well. And there'll be some merging of the two. And I, I have zero doubt that the form factor for the devices on which we consume uh, these properties will change and become lighter, quicker, cheaper, more convenient. Um, but at the end of the day, storytelling has been around for a really, really long time and playing games has been around for a really, really long time. And I, I suspect that won't really change. And music has been around for a really long time. Those, those, you know, core parts of the entertainment business won't change. Their expression will change greatly. And our job as an enterprise is in fact to be at the forefront of that change um, and to try to innovate. And that's what we're trying to do with take two and more broadly at ZMC. We'll see, see how we do. So remote work is one of these mega trends that's been accelerated uh, by the pandemic. You've seen stocks like Zoom uh, go to the moon and others who are enabling remote work. You're seeing big companies, Goldman Sachs recently uh, indicated they're going to move some of their asset management business down from New York to Florida because of more favorable uh, business climate down there. How do you think the gamification of work might play out uh, in an environment where you're seeing more people work remotely. Obviously, there's pluses and minuses to having people work in a decentralized setting. And one of the minuses is lack of interpersonal interaction and, and team building. Uh, 
setting that you get in person. So how can we use things like virtual communities or video games or gamification to take some of the uh, interpersonal interaction that you would normally get in an in-person setting and transfer it to a remote work environment? Well, I mean, people are doing conference calls, in, in, you know, inside Red Dead Online and inside Grand Theft Auto Online, for example. Um, that'd be, I think, an example of what you're talking about. But I actually don't think the world is going to shift to total remote work. And I think the companies that are, you know, saying, oh, we don't care if people work from home endlessly, that's fine. Or maybe we'll even pay them less if they do, or we'll cut our real estate footprint. I, 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 don't, I don't think that is going to make any sense at all. I think you lose the ability for serendipitous interactions and team building. Um, and the fact that you're able to do something when pressed to do it does not mean it's a great idea to do it all the time. What I do think will permanently change is first, a willingness to understand that at times remote work can make sense. Secondly, I think we are all going to be um, less likely to travel. I think we're going to say, you know what, that trip that I thought I had to make, I can probably do those meetings via Zoom more frequently uh, than before, but I don't think it'll get rid of business travel at, at all. Um, so for example, I think you know, you'll still have a SALT conference in Las Vegas when you can. Um, because I think it's great to get people together and that's how you build connection and community. And I'll be there if I'm invited because I think it'll be fun. Um, but I don't think you need to do, you know, salt talks in person five days a week. I think you can do this very effectively on Zoom. So I think you'll see a, a move ahead where both will be true. We will be able to, to work remotely when necessary. We will primarily still work together, you know, in a physical setting because that allows for all kinds of unexpected and unscheduled interactions that can yield great things. Um, we'll still travel when necessary, but we may do so more selectively. Uh, and I think that that is an acceleration of a pre-existing trend. But to believe it goes all the way to the other side, and we need to ask ourselves, how do we gamify that thing that went to the other side? I'm going to beg the question and say, we're not going all the way to the other side in the first place. So I'll leave you with one final question. It's something we like to ask CEOs, and you've led a lot of very successful companies. You invest in successful companies, and you've uh, you know, obviously catapulted your company during this you know, work-from-home period as a result of the pandemic. What leadership qualities do you think are important uh, when an organization is tested with a you know, curveball like we saw come out of nowhere you know, with a global pandemic that causes everyone to be basically quarantined in their homes for the better part of a year? Well, first, preparation. You know, my prayer is not a business plan. The reason that Take Two was so effective in this pandemic is that we have an incredible IT department run by Scott Belmont that had been totally focused at great expense on disaster preparation. And they were ready to do a work from, work from home test in early March. And then guess what? Everyone had to work from home. We were able to roll out work from home in a week. We had 6,500 people seven days after starting working effectively from home, you know, on enterprise quality computer setups. We had invested in a backbone that allowed us to do that. So it's all, it's tempting to talk about, you know, leadership being words, but leadership is, you know, based in actions and we were prepared and we try to be prepared for any eventuality that can occur. Then, you know, once you get into that situation, um, I think leadership is is always, you know, being being a player coach, being right there with the team, being engaged, um, you know, being concerned, and 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 the other part of leadership is making decisions that are in service of the common good. Um, so, you know, I have peers who said, "Wow, you know, we're a very big, strong company," but you know what? 
um, this tough time, a lot of companies are firing people. You know what we're going to do? We're going to do a 20% across the board pay cut because we can. You know, we didn't cut any salaries. We didn't furlough any people. We didn't use it as an opportunity to reduce any headcount. But we have a compact with our colleagues that, you know, we're going to take care of each other. And one of the reasons that we've been um, disciplined and careful and ultimately successful is so that we can withstand tough times. So we didn't see this as an opportunity to take, you know, take a pound of flesh from our colleagues and we'll come out of this. And as a result of that, I think have even better morale than before and maintain our incredibly low attrition rates, which is coincident with having a high degree of success. You've seen those companies who said, yeah, you know, we cut our footprint and cut our costs um, and, you know, we cut our salaries. It's like, well, that's great. When things come back to normal, you tell me how loyal your teams are. So at the end of the day, you know, leadership is about actions not words. The words only matter if they reflect the actions that you take. And finally, I think leadership is is about empathy and kindness, um, something you know that forms an enormous part of our mission. Well, Strauss, that's a great way to end it. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt Talks. Anthony, do you have a final word for Strauss before we let him go? Well, I just want to uh, read out the two books that Strauss is an author of. Uh, so the first one which was literally the last one, Becoming Ageless, the one I read. Uh, I heartily recommend everybody. And I'm going to be out there, Strauss, buying success, a concise guide to having the life you want as well. Uh, so, so two great books from Strauss Zelnick. Thank you for joining us. And uh, yes, I see a salt talk in your future on a live stage somewhere, Strauss. You're not going to be able to get away from us. And congratulations on all the success. And I'm sure that your team's looking forward to the... Uh, these new uh, gaming consoles. I'm sure that they're already taking advantage of them. So all the thanks so much for having me. Happy holidays. See you all. See you soon. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, John. And we're, and we're very excited too. We were talking before we went live and we were actually joking about it a few weeks ago, but Strauss has agreed to do a workout session under the Salt Talks banner. So he does, he leads workouts for the Take Two team internally uh, that are religiously attended by, I think, several hundred uh, employees at Take Two. And he has graciously volunteered to embarrass us by leading a workout session that none of us will be able to keep up with. So we're very excited to, uh, to do that in the coming weeks. Thanks again, guys. All right. Thank you. All the best.